Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And ooh, I feel a cool Pacific breeze ruffling the hairs on my forearm because it's time to find the beast of the beaches in, in uh, uh, oh, I stalled out there. We're doing a Hawaii movie. That's right. Um, now, when, when we say Hawaii movie, what do you think of? Maybe you think about classic uh, Hawaii dramas or Elvis movies. Maybe you think of big budget films like Jurassic Park where they, they need a lush jungle environment, maybe some flyovers. So they go to the Hawaiian Islands. But you might be wondering, where are the B movies? Uh, yeah. Where specifically are the monster movies? Yeah, this is a really good question. So a lot of movies and TV shows are shot in Hawaii because it's a it's a convenient place to get a tropical looking jungle location, but they're not actually set in Hawaii. I was trying to think of movies that are set in Hawaii, uh, especially in, in our sort of wheelhouse. Uh, the closest the first thing that came to my mind actually is, did you ever see Big Jim McLean? <laughs> no, but I think I think I remember Mystery Science Theater jokes about it. It was a John Wayne anti-communist propaganda thriller where he mm -hmm. plays a – I think John Wayne is like an agent for the House Un-American Activities Committee. Um, <laughs> and he's just running around punching commie rats in Hawaii. Oh, okay. No, I haven't seen that. But that does sound par for the course in terms of the Hawaii movies that you find. Yeah. The, the other main thing in terms of Hawaii B-movies – I was trying to think of Hawaii horror movies – there's almost nothing that came to mind except I think Snakes on a Plane uh, begins in Hawaii. Oh, okay. Uh, but the but the 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 thing that really comes to mind with Hawaii B movies is not B horror or B sci fi, but B action movies. There are like seemingly a million action movies in the eighties set in Hawaii that are about drug dealers, and they're the sort of like bikini and machine gun subgenre. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the bikini machine guns genre being one that can basically take place anywhere, but it helps if it's a if it's essentially a vacation uh, type environment, if it's tropical, if there's if there are palm trees in the background. Right. Right. The bad guy's always Dan Hedaya or somebody like mm -hmm. that as a, as a drug kingpin. Yeah. So uh, I was I was recently in Hawaii, and while I was there, I was pondering this because this is what I do on on trips. I'm, I wonder what what kind of monster movie was filmed here, you know? And uh, I actually I found one. I found a, a good one uh, or a good selection for Weird House Cinema. <laughs> it is a werewolf movie set in Hawaii and filmed exclusively in Hawaii, entirely on the island of Kauai. Wow. So I don't know if I'd go with you on good one, but it is a good selection. <laughs> it gives us a lot to talk about. Well, you know, being that I think it is the I mean, if you don't count snakes on the plane and I, I don't really count snakes on the plane, given that it's like the only monster movie and given the wide um, uh, the, the wide swath of quality that it could occupy, mm -hmm. uh, I feel like it lands in a comfortable place. <laughs> okay. Like it's it's watchable. Uh, it has decent actors in it. It's competently directed. Uh, <laughs> sort it, of. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's we'll discuss here, it's a TV movie. So yeah. it has that, that TV competency to it. You right. know, like there, there were network checks in place here. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I feel like it, it passes the litmus test. Um, and it, it is, I think, the best Hawaii monster movie. Uh, I, I, I challenge anyone to, to show me a better one. <laughs> Oh, do those Elvis movies count? 
No, no. Well, those are great examples. They're not monster movies. But yes, two of of the Elvis Hawaii movies are of particular note here. 1961's Blue Hawaii and 1966 Paradise Hawaiian Style. They were shot on the Isle of uh, Kauai, specifically at Cocoa Palms Resort, which was a famous resort of the day with all sorts of Hollywood ties and controversy due to uh, ancestral land claims by Native Islanders. Uh, this, uh, this is actually the location, the filming location of our movie today. Our werewolf film was filmed at Cocoa Palms Resort. You see it uh, almost all the time in the film. Um, the ruins of it are still around today because it was it was destroyed by Hurricane Iniki in 1992, the most powerful hurricane to strike Hawaii in recorded history. And as of this recording, it has never been rebuilt. Uh, there have been some efforts and some plans, but nothing has come to pass. So it just remains ruins. This is funny because some of the bad Hawaiian action movies I've seen feature uh, ruins of a multi-story building that looks kind of like this. I wonder if those things were also shot here. Well, it's kind of like when we, we were talking about in our, our Florida movie trilogy that you have you have any kind of place that has a very um, in a very hot climate and you know proximity to the ocean and uh, a vacation industry. Uh, you're going to end up with these kind of ruins there and. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just irresistible to filmmakers, especially if, you're, if you need some sort of lonely location for your monsters or ghosts. I guess so. But but we should be clear that in this movie that we're talking about today, the resort is still active and intact. It is not it is not a ruin like this. It's a place with a golf course. In fact, it is they show off many aspects of the resort, almost as if maybe the resort was was paying to be in the film or something. I, I'm not actually alleging that, but well, uh, it's prominently featured in the credits. Uh, but yeah. but again, there were Hollywood connections there. I think it was kind of you know a number of movies have been shot here, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, clearly this was the place to shoot your movie. So this movie, I don't think we actually gave the top line yet. It is called Death Moon, and like many made-for-TV movies of the late '70s, early '80s. This is a very title-first kind of thing. We've we've talked about poster-first type movies, title-first type movies. This fits right in there. I am convinced that there was a title before there was a script. It was like, give me a TV movie called Death Moon, and the writers said, okay, boss. Yeah, yeah. A, a TV movie. It originally aired, I looked this up, May 31st, 1978, in the 9 p.m. time slot on CBS, following an episode of The Incredible Hulk. So this is a Wednesday night <laughs> TV uh, werewolf movie. Now, if you speak English but not Dutch, an easy way to make any film more amusing is to watch it with Dutch subtitles, which we did, uh, because the the version that we found had had them from, I guess maybe it was a Dutch TV broadcast, I'm not sure. But the, but the great thing about Dutch is if you're an English speaker, you won't understand most of it, but you get a few cognates that are quite amusing. And so the first thing I learned upon watching Death Moon 1978 was that the Dutch translation for the English word workaholic is Work beast, W E R K B E E S T. I think technically it would be like work based, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, work beast. It's what's for dinner. Yes, this this was very exciting for me as well because on one level it's it's perfect. Like if it's it actually makes the movie better to have the the term work beast thrown in there because it's about a workaholic who goes on vacation and turns into a werewolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's perfect to think of him as a work beast. Um, Do you think it was trying to say something? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I imagine the, 
you know, when you translate a, a film and you do the subtitles, you have a certain amount of leeway. And mm-hmm. maybe that was part of it. They were like, you know, we could we they could have just gone with a straight translation of of workaholic, perhaps, or some other translation, you know, but they, they realized work beast was perfect. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, tip of the hat to whoever did these Dutch <laughs> subtitles back in the day. Okay, so the reason you picked this movie out is because it's basically the only bee monster movie that is set in Hawaii that you could find. But the other thing that's important to talk about with it is it's a, it's a great example of a form, which is the late 70s made-for-TV movie. Uh, like, late 70s and early 80s made-for-TV movies are very interesting to me in a lot of ways. Uh, one that always comes to my mind when I think about other, other sort of prototype examples of this is the 1984 Wes Craven-directed movie Invitation to Hell, huh. which is about a, a family who, like, moves to a planned community, I think, because the dad gets a new job, and they try to join a country club, but it's actually run by Satan. Okay, that sounds about right for... You know, so some of Wes Craven's work that was it at least got into a, a shallow amount of um, of social commentary, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe it's just me. I, I wonder what you think that, about this. It seems to me that a thing that a lot of these late 70s, early 80s made for TV horror movies have in common is that they are somewhere between a regular low budget feature horror film and. And one of those like social trend segments on 60 Minutes. (laughs) And by the latter, I mean, it's kind of hard to define, but they often have this element of a a segment on 60 Minutes that would be like, you may have noticed more urban professionals moving from the East Coast to the Bay Area. That's because of a burgeoning new industry based on this, known as a semiconductor. They're used in everything from calculators to clock radios and, you know, and, and like... Uh, and, and so the, they base a movie around that. It often just feels like it has this ephemeral connection to some kind of trend ob- that people might be observing or talking about that week. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I feel I feel what you mean. And also the idea that this movie in particular came out on a, a Wednesday night, mm-hmm. uh, just in, in, you know, just out in the middle of nowhere and then is gone. You know, it's very ephemeral in that sense. Yeah, yeah. And they often feel like they've got some kind of very loose news peg, or they often feel like, um, like they, they partially exist to educate you about a subject, like a particular place or, you know, so in this example, it could be the Hawaiian Island that's talking about, though, I think whatever you would learn from this movie would be entirely wrong. Right. Yeah. About the only thing you could learn that would be 100% correct is like, here's this resort. Like I'm actually looking at this resort and I could, at the time I could travel there and see the same things that our werewolf sees. But like, if you were credulous, you could get the impression that this movie is maybe teaching you something about, uh, like Polynesian religious traditions or something, which again, I don't think it is. No, it, it, it absolutely is not. Um, I will say there are some, some nice scenes of them driving around, uh, that, that at least a little bit give you an idea of the, the, the beautiful, um, uh, landscape there, and then also there are some neat, there are some neat uh, scenes of them uh, walking around downtown in a little town there in Kauai, which, mm-hmm. uh, especially given that it's the late 1970s, uh, it, it feels like a time capsule. And ultimately, like this whole movie feels like a ta- time capsule, especially when you're watching a, a VHS transfer 
uh, from a like a Dutch v, uh, or a European VHS release, um, uh, you know, from back in the day. Because I I don't think we've stressed this yet, but I don't think you can get this film anywhere today legitimately. I think, uh, I mean, the best you can do is you can find it where we found it on YouTube, where I think it's been uploaded since 2017 uh, for people to to share and enjoy. But yeah, a DVD, a Blu-ray, I don't think it's ever happened. I'd love I'd love for it to happen, but uh, yeah, I think this it remains this kind of echo from the past. Another thing that's extremely common about these late 70s, early 80s made-for-TV thrillers is that they pretty much all have something like an elevator pitch that you could deliver very succinctly. They're the oh, – what's the name for that format? It's like Dracula in Miami or something. You know, yeah. It's just like X in Y. Yeah, and, and, and in that respect, it fits nicely into um, – into a like a, a TV promo, yeah. you know. Uh, stay tuned after incredible the Incredible Hulk for Death Moon. What happens if a if a werewolf lands on a fun holiday in Hawaii? That sort of thing, and then you're yeah. watching the, the the film. And I will say, I tried really hard to find such a clip to find mm-hmm. like a network trailer for this movie, and I couldn't. I could not find anything. Uh, so if anyone out there has it on some like old VHS or something, uh, I uh, send it to us because I'd like to hear it. So we couldn't find a trailer or promo of any kind, but maybe we can give you just a little bit of audio from the film. Let's do it. That was Lieutenant Court from the police. Wanted to know if I heard anything during the night. Not a struggle. Did you? No, I was out of it again. I crashed. Well, are you all right now? I am, but... But what? What is it? Uh, the lieutenant didn't tell me this, but I overheard a couple of his men talking, and she was torn apart. Torn apart? I don't know what you just heard, but <laughs> presumably something really enticing. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll be excited to find out what it was. Uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and get into the, the people who brought this film to life. First up, the director, Bruce Kessler, born 1936. Uh, Kessler really has the late 20th century TV pedigree. He directed episodes of The Monkees, Mission Impossible, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Barnaby Jones, Chips, Knight Rider, you name it. Just a, just about any, if you watched Mystery Science Theater back uh, back in the 90s, just about any old TV show that, uh, that Joel or, and or Mike would reference Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't know as a child what those shows were, but you laughed anyway. Like yep. all those shows, Kessler had his his fingers in. Um, he even directed an episode of The Master, a.k.a. Master Ninja, starring Lee Van Cleef, hmm. which there was like a movie cut of that uh, was featured on Mystery Science Theater. I think earlier in his career, so a lot of the TV work is in the, the 70s and the 80s, but earlier in his career, he did a couple of exploitation films. Yeah, he directed the 1968 biker exploitation film Angels from Hell, as well as uh, a film that I haven't seen, but it has a certain um, uh, the, uh, it has a certain mystique about it. 1971, Simon King of the Witches, which starred Andrew Pine. Yeah, I haven't seen this either, but I've read about it. It is supposedly a kind of uh, hippie culture expose that was promoted as like a Manson family type film to cash mm-hmm. in on that panic. But but it wasn't really about that. It's just about like a guy who uh, believes he can do magic and he ends up hanging out with hippies. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the, the vibe. But I was poking around in Bruce Kessler's career and found some, some very interesting uh, recurring themes. So one was that... 
Kessler also directed a Christmas episode of the show T.J. Hooker. Remember the uh, the detective mm-hmm. show starring um, William Shatner? And the, the episode was called Slay Ride, S-L-A-Y, <laughs> which is the source of any images you may have seen of William Shatner in a Santa suit. I've yeah. attached one for you to look at here, Rob. He looks – the Santa is not happy. Yeah, he's intense. And then in the same year, so these are both 1983, you mentioned that he did episodes of Knight Rider. His Christmas-themed episode of Knight Rider called <laughs> Silent Night, K-N-I-G-H-T. I was unable to discover if Hasselhoff ever dressed up as Bell Snickle in this one. But he is he, in 83, he did two different Christmas episodes of cop shows. Wow. So I want to know the story behind that. Did he, what did he, he's like, oh, I've got a Christmas guy this year, you know, who will hook you <laughs> up with all the Santa suits and everything you need. Or maybe he's just leaning into Christmas. Yeah. He's just oh, like, maybe. I'm in the, I'm in the spirit. Give me some, give me some Christmas episodes. Right. Like he, he got a, he, he ate a bad uh, candy cane and then he just couldn't stop. Yeah. Uh, but in addition to Kessler's TV work and his early exploitation movies, it seems like in the late 70s, he went on a minor binge of made-for-TV cinema. Uh, so this was like 77, 78, including this beauty I came across called Cruise Into Terror from 78. I'm going to read the IMDb synopsis. An Egyptian sarcophagus that is cargo on a pleasure cruise ship <laughs> has a secret. It contains the son of Satan, and its effects start to make the ship's passengers behave strangely. Now that that lines up rather interestingly well with our movie today of like vacation, uh, like typical stereotypical American vacation plus a uh-huh. uh, classic movie monster. What do you know? I mean, you're right on the money. I looked this up, except th- this movie looks even more dreadful than uh, <laughs> than than the Werewolf in Hawaii movie. Cruise into Terror has on its side Ray Milland, who played the nasty mm. old creep in Frogs. Remember uh, the the old man who's yeah, yeah, yelling at frogs towards the end. Yeah, right. And so in this movie, I found also this has been ripped and put up on the internet. So I was poking around in Cruise into Terror. And uh, yeah, it just looks awful. But there was a very funny scene of Ray Milan yelling at a sarcophagus. <laughs> All so, right. Yeah. Well, we may have to look that up then. Yeah, it's like, a, I don't know if it, it doesn't look fully watchable, but the scenes <laughs> toward the end where it's like a, a bad copy of the King Tut sarcophagus. Mm-hmm. And he's just, you know, he's like holding an axe and being like, you've haunted me for 30 years. <laughs> oh, wow. All right, well, let's talk about the, the writers here briefly. Jay Benson and George Schenck. Uh, Benson was mostly a career TV producer, and Schenck did a lot of TV production work as well, but, but wrote a lot more. And when I say he wrote, we're talking 45 episodes of NCIS, uh, which you may not watch, but somebody in your family watches it, I assure you. Uh, he also served as EP on NCIS, and he co-wrote 1976 Future World, uh, a sequel to Westworld. Is NCIS the one that has the, uh, it's like a lab and there's a goth lady? I think so, yeah. And it has, um, oh, I can't remember his name. George Harmon, is that his name? Mark Harmon? I think Mark Harmon's in it. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not sure I know who that is. Yeah, I don't know this show. I've only seen it on While Visiting Relatives. Is it about goths who solve crimes? No, there's just a goth on the team, on the the tech team. Okay, there's one goth. It is a team including a goth who solves crimes. Yes. Okay. I think it stands for National Crimes in Space, or I don't know what it stands for. 
anyway, uh, it exists. And uh, yeah, so yeah, I mean, it's a highly successful show. And and one of the uh, the writers of of uh, of Death Moon went on to be a part of it. Oh, so we know we're in good hands. Yeah. Well, shall we talk about our, our actors then? Right. Okay. So the main character in this movie is a work beast named Jason Palmer, and he is played by this guy, Robert Foxworth, who I don't think I was really familiar with. Yeah. He, uh, uh, you know, after I started looking into him, I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally know this guy. But when I first encountered our leisure suit wearing uh, hero here, uh, I wasn't sure I'd seen him before. He just kind of looked like some different people. But he's perhaps best known to modern film fans as the voice of Ratchet in the Transformers movies. Oh, uh, which I don't even know what Ratchet sounds like. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Well, unfortunately, all this is doing is making me imagine other Transformers voice actors in this lead role. So, like Peter Cullen, the guy who does Optimus Prime, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, or oh, you know that you really could have gotten a good movie out of uh, a, the guy who does the voice of Star Scream turning into a werewolf. <laughs> At any rate, it's a major film, so good for for Foxworth. But um, it, uh, also, he uh, for I guess for our older viewers. Uh, you might recognize him as the character Chase on the primetime soap opera Falcon Crest, which ran from 1981 through 1987. He also played uh, Bernard Chinoweth on Six Feet Under. Uh, I don't think I, I watched enough Six Feet Under to, to catch him on that. And he also had a recurring role on The West Wing. Hmm. But who, he also who was he on The West Wing? Um, he was a, one of these characters that should, popped up for like three or four episodes, I think. So. I'm assuming he played a politician or maybe a maybe a <laughs> journalist, but um, I, I can't say for sure. Senator George Montgomery. Okay, I have no idea ah. who that is. All right, okay. Uh, but he also has some strong uh, TV genre credentials. Uh, he played Victor Frankenstein in a 1973 TV movie, and he guest starred in Sequest, DSV, Babylon 5, uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek Enterprise. He was also in the films Damien, Omen 2, and was the lead in 1979's Prophecy, the mutant bear picture. <laughs> oh, I never saw that one. Uh, and the the thing, the most recent thing that I definitely saw him in, he was in a really fun episode of The Outer Limits uh, from the 90s, uh, in which he played a bunker-bound U.S. president during an alien attack. Like a, a re- okay. very unpleasant U.S. president. Uh, you know, he's very grumpy and, and demanding, uh, and he's trying to deal with the fact that the world is being attacked by aliens, and he doesn't know if he should trust the aliens, trust his advisors, mm-hmm. uh, etc. Uh, fun episode. Uh, well, I will say in this movie, uh, I don't know if this can really be chalked up to to Foxworth as an actor, but the character he plays in this film really has no identifiable vices or virtues except for the fact that he's a work beast. That's that's pretty much his entire personality. Yeah, I mean, he, he comes off likable without you know, tremendous amount of dimension to his character. But yeah, for him, it seems like a lot of times in... I don't know. I, I guess you can go either way with a werewolf movie. Sometimes uh, in a werewolf movie, the beset individual is just cursed. You know, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. They're out on the moors. Mm-hmm. They get bit by a, a werewolf and now they're stuck with it. And, you know, it's not really a commentary on their vices, etc. It's just what they got. And I guess that's more what we have here with uh, the Jason character. But uh, but in other cases, it seems like they le- you lean more into the idea of, of uh, lycanthropy as as a is a as an overt physical manifestation of inner monstrosity. Mm-hmm. 
So in this, he's, uh, yeah, I think as an actor, he's perfectly fine in this. He has amazing hair. Um, he's uh, great at conveying a sort of, uh, you know, detached unraveling uh, beneath uh, his his style. And he does, he's really rocking the 70s style on this because he's he's legitimately wearing a leisure suit uh, in in a number of scenes, uh, which I feel like is, is rare to really find in the wild in your cinema. You know, there's a lot of talk of leisure suits, mm-hmm. but you kind of forget what one looks like. Well, Behold, here's Jason Palmer, our leisure suit wearing entertainment agent who might just be overworking himself. He's an entertainment agent? That's what his career is? I believe that's correct. Oh, Or maybe I imagined that. I might have imagined that. But okay, has... I, th- I thought he was in real estate. Oh, wait, you're right. Somebody is an entertainment agent in this, right? I believe you, but I don't know. Mm, I, maybe I'm wrong on that. Anyway, his there's not really you're not really given much to go on. He has I think maybe he does mention real estate once, but basically he is a stereotypical successful American business type. Yes, uh, w- with a very very nice head of curly hair, and uh, and, and I got to say the the main thing that I appreciated in this movie was the jiggle that he does when he starts about when he's like about to wolf out. You know, mm-hmm. the moon cuts in between the clouds and the synth stings start happening, and then he just starts to jiggle and like you know his face kind of wiggles and his shoulders go up and down. He, he's yeah. getting into it. He's got he has very expressive eyes and his face was just like the right amount of doughy, you know, like it's uh-huh. not like he, he had a his kind of a baby face without having like a full baby face. And it works well in scenes like this. It also gives him a sort of a boyish innocence, despite the fact, you know, that he's you know, he's, he's got a little gray hair in there. Mm hmm. All right, so that's our lead. That is our uh, that's our work beast. Uh, we'll come back to him at length. But then uh, our secondary character here, who is I guess sort of a hero in his own right, <laughs> is the character Rick Bladen, played by Joe Penny, uh, born 1956. He is the house detective. So I was trying so hard to understand what's going on here. He is a detective who works for the hotel. Yes. Uh, and I this was not on my radar as a thing at all. But but after we initially talked about this, I, I looked into it a bit more. And it seems like the house detective was actually a thing. Um, I guess it's kind of been replaced to a certain extent in in modern times by more of like a full blown security uh, coordinator. And you have a lot more technology involved. Hmm. But I was reading a piece for Travel and Leisure from 2009 by George uh, Kalogarex. And basically, the situation was you would have an ex-cop working at a hotel and doing a bit more than mere security guard stuff. So kind of overseeing like overall security, checking on, um, you know, anybody that was being a little bit fishy, Mm -hmm. uh, looking into into stuff that was going on in the hotel. And it it apparently picked up a lot of steam in in noir works, uh, specifically in the works of of Raymond Chandler. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, I've only read The Big Sleep. Which was, which was great. I loved it. But uh, it looks like hotel detectives pop up in at least three works of his. So this is kind of like, I don't know, like the master at arms on the Titanic, but for a, a landlubber hotel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for example, in, um, in, in Chandler's uh, uh, The Little Sister from 1949, there's a bit where our, our, our main character is saying, he, he says, look, I said, you're going to find this hard to believe, but I came over here with the, the quaint idea that you might be a girl who needed some help and would find it rather hard to get anyone you could bank on. I figured you went to that hotel room to make some kind of a payoff. And the fact that you went by yourself and took chances on being recognized and were recognized by a house dick. That's the house detective, house dick, dick detective. Right. You, you know, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
he continues, whose standard of ethics would take about as much strain as a very tired old cobweb. All this made me think you might be one of those Hollywood jams that really mean curtains. <laughs> anyway, there's more to that. But basically, like there's an allusion here to a house detective, uh, the, 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 the guy who is on the job looking out for uh, any kind of uh, illicit activity. And in some cases and in some stories, I think there's the idea, too, that there may be they can be a little bit crooked. Um mm-hmm. But other times, like they're there to, you know, they're they're really strict, and they're not going to let any kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, unsavory business slide. Well, yeah. So they're like a private detective, like a private dick, except they work for the for the hotel. Right. Yeah. And that's our character, Rick. Here, he's he's the house uh, detective, and um, you might be wondering, well, where have I seen Joe Penny for uh, before? Well, have you ever watched Jake and the Fat Man from 1987 <laughs> through 1992? Did Joe not. Penny was Jake. Opposite William Conrad's titular Fat Man. <laughs> Wait, was this the thing that was parodied on uh, on The Simpsons with Wiggum P.I.? Uh, I, I guess so. I don't remember Wiggum P.I. offhand. Oh, it was on the, the episode The Simpsons Spinoff Showcase. It's where Chief Wiggum and Seymour Skinner go to New Orleans and become private dicks. They're, they're private oh. detectives there in town. Um, I bet so. I, that's probably what it was, yeah. That's the uh, one with, uh, with uh, look, big daddy, it's regular daddy. Oh, yeah, I do remember that line. Yeah. Um, so uh, Joe Penny, uh, he was also in some other TV shows of this era. Uh, and the law, uh, he was also in the 1981 slasher film Bloody Birthday and in the 1981 sci-fi film Life Pod. Have not seen them. Yep. But, uh, but they exist. And uh, yeah, that's Joe Penny. We'll, t- we'll talk about uh, his character Rick a bit more as we proceed. So question, if you notice this about Joe Penny, in this movie, occasionally, he, he's supposed to be, I think, kind of a kind of a slick hunk. Like, he's really into fitness. He does a lot of push-ups and exercise and stuff. But occasionally, you'll get a certain angle on his face where his eyes look very Peter Lorre. Yeah, yeah, he does. Uh, he's like a, a, a fitness buff Peter Lorre. Uh, to, to a certain extent, I, I, yeah, the, the fact that he's buff and can do uh, uh, one-handed push-ups on mm-hmm. the beach—that's really one of his defining characteristics in this. Like, we really don't know a lot about this guy, except that he's really good at one-handed push-ups. He has a microscope in his office, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> All right, there's a romantic interest in this picture. Right, Work Beast falls in love. Because, of course, if you're a Work Beast, you go to Hawaii, you fall in love while you're there. And the lady he falls in love with is a character named Diane. Yes, played by Barbara Trentum. And um, she was, uh, and uh, she, she's, a, she's an interesting character. She would play Daphne in 1975's Rollerball. Mm. Uh, she wasn't in much else, but uh, it's worth noting she was Monty Python member John Cleese's second wife. Uh, from 1981 through 1990, so she's the mother of actress Camilla Cleese. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and I'll say she's perfectly fine in this role. She, you know, it's uh-huh. a standard love interest uh, uh, role for the most part, but you also buy her as a highly successful businesswoman. Sure. The, I mean, this is kind of a straight down the middle kind of role. Uh, she's yeah. just like very earnest and very helpful and well-meaning. Right. Now, there's a bit character worth noting in this, uh, the character of Sherry, played by uh, uh, DeBraley Scott. Uh, she's basically just a stewardess slash victim in this, but she's a comedic actress who uh, popped up in a number of uh, of notable films of the day. She was in 1973's American Graffiti. I think she plays uh, uh, Harrison Ford's girlfriend in that, hmm. uh, his, his character's girlfriend. She was in uh, 74's Earthquake. She was in Police Academies 1 and 3. She popped up on a number of TV shows, including Welcome Back, Cotter, and played a corpse in Dirty Harry. Ah. 
Now, there's another actor in this I wanted to mention by the name of Branscombe Richmond, uh, born mm. 1955, who plays a character named Vince, uh, who is, uh, I guess he's some kind of security guard at the hotel. He's dressed like a cop, but I guess that could just be a security guard outfit. Uh, he spends a lot of the a lot of his scenes in the movie chasing around a room thief who has been stealing from the hotel guests. But Richmond is actually probably to a lot of people going to be very recognizable as a character actor and stuntman because he's been in a million movies, often playing a tough guy, a biker, a bar brawler, a villain's henchman in 80s action movies. According to his IMDb biography, quote, he's been on the receiving end of the fists of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. Ah. Gotten pummeled by Carl Weathers in Action Jackson and tangled with Steven Seagal in Hard to Kill. Uh, it seems like in reality, uh, uh, Richmond is a motorcycle enthusiast. I've dug up a few pictures from movies he was in. I think I found a picture of him about to get punched by Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. Mm-hmm. Um, you might also recognize him from Batman Returns as a violent crime clown who attacks Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, uh, Okay. Uh, he also apparently had a small part in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, where he played like a Klingon gunner. Oh, uh, nice. But he, he's definitely an oh, that guy kind of actor. Like you might not know his name, but you've probably seen him in at least a dozen movies, especially if you've watched action movies of the 80s. So we were trying to figure out how to pronounce the name of the next actress in this movie. And I actually looked up an interview with her where uh, a film historian who was interviewing her introduced her and pronounced her name with a with a French inflection. So uh, he called her France Nouillon. Nouillon. OK. Yeah. France Nouillon, born 1939. In this, she plays uh, uh, Topolua, a helpful witch. So for a film set in, in Hawaii, we have, I think, virtually no Polynesian actors, um, but she's the most prominent Asian actor in the film. She's a, a French citizen of Asian descent. She popped up in a number of titles before becoming a psychological counselor. Her first film role was in 1958 South Pacific, and she went on to appear in 1973's Battle for the Planet of the Apes. She was in 1993's The Joy Luck Club, and she uh, appeared in the 1990s Outer Limits as well, uh, along with... Um, some classic Trek episodes and also Gunsmoke. So she was pretty impressive uh, filmography. Yeah. So I was poking around in her filmography and uh, I found one thing that was quite odd. So she was in a 1973 TV movie again, uh, made for TV called the horror at 37,000 feet. And it starred William Shatner and Chuck Connors. Now, if this is sort of tingling your brain in a strange way, uh, maybe this will help make sense of it. There was also a classic Twilight Zone episode called Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which also starred William Shatner. But in that episode of the Twilight Zone, Shatner played a man who sees a gremlin on the wing of an airplane. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, Horror at 37,000 Feet, William Shatner is a priest who must confront a demon in a baggage compartment. (laughs) It sounds great. Yeah, uh, and uh, and France Nouillon plays, and uh, she's a passenger on the airplane who I think is supposed to be a model. Uh, I watched a funny scene where some guy's trying to chat her up, and she kind of gives him the cold shoulder. <laughs> uh, but from uh, I was reading about this movie from the IMDb trivia, uh, quote, William Shatner described his character's demise in the movie as one of his unique ways of dying, quote, I get sucked out of an airplane while carrying a lit torch into the airliner's baggage compartment to try to confront a druid ghost. 
Well, there you go. A winning concept. Yeah. And I got some pictures for you to look at, Rob. Doesn't it look just gorgeous? It looks great. <laughs> so the plane has stalactites. Is that, am I seeing that right? Yeah. Um, it's like the or plane is it stuff is, floating around? I don't know. I can't really tell. I think it is supposed to be that the plane is like morphing into a cave and it has stalactites in the bag and Weird. in the back. Huh. All right. Well, let's round things out here. Who did the music on this movie? Uh, it's Paul Chihara, born 1938, Japanese-American composer. He's who's been extremely prolific, composed a good 100 film scores. And these include the likes of uh, Corman's Death Race 2000 from 1975, which was directed by Paul, Paul Bartel, who we've uh, we've uh, mentioned on the show before. His score for Death Moon is mostly traditional, but uh, but I think generally effective. And we also have this really weird electronic bit that plays when werewolf stuff happens. And I, mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Given the modulated stings, you're supposed to, I think hear them and feel a little uh, tingle or a shiver coming out of the moon. Yeah, the lunacy uh, striking uh, you in the soul, right. changing you into the wolf. Now, Rob, he- here's a question. Could you explain why the first thing we see in this movie is a view from the surface of the moon? <laughs> it was a bold choice. Yeah. It, you know, maybe this helped keep some viewers who were still hanging around after Incredible Hulk, who were thinking about going to bed early, and then they were like, whoa, what's this? I thought yeah. there was some sort of Hawaiian werewolf movie coming on, but now we're in space? Right. We're in, so we're in space on the surface of the moon, the, the black, black horizon in the background, and then we get a text crawl. And may, I don't know if it's significant that this was the year after Star Wars came out, but we get a yellow text crawl across the, the background of space, which reads as follows. Wherever fearsome beasts have roamed, the legend of the werewolf persists, even in the tropical paradise of the Pacific, where it is said and believed that when the shadow of the moon is cast, he who is cursed will be transformed from an ordinary man into a vicious beast. So first of all, I don't think that's true. I do not think that there is a uh, a werewolf tradition in Hawaiian legend, though there might be some uh, real world analogs that we could talk about later mm-hmm. on but second it says that so normally how do you how do you turn into a werewolf what happens some there's some kind of atmospheric phenomenon or not atmospheric some kind of celestial phenomenon which is the full moon right the moon is mm-hmm. shining with its full disc down on your side of the earth at night yep this says when the shadow of the moon is cast i don't know what that means does that mean a solar eclipse because there are no solar eclipses in this movie i think it's just ultimately what elegant variation where they, they just they, they didn't want to just say when there's a full moon but then in trying to spice it up they end up saying the wrong thing <laughs> yeah i think you're right but anyway so we're we're seeing this on the surface of the moon like we're standing there and then we see the Earthrise photo so we see the the earth from the moon and we get the title death moon one word not two and so immediately you're thinking like, why? So are we going to space in this movie? Are there going to be aliens? Yeah. And no, Astronaut nope. backstory? <laughs> nope. Not at all. You never come back to the moon, never go to space again. We just, for some reason, see the Earth from space. But you immediately cut from the opening sequence after the credits to an echoey, dreamlike vision of a ritual dance where music is playing and a man is dancing wearing a, a sort of wolf hat uh, or some kind of monstrous 
uh, headwear where the, the face of the wolf is sort of on backwards. So when his head is turned and you look at the back of his head, you see the wolf's face. And meanwhile, there is like a priestess chanting in the background. Uh, and then you see a guy who looks like he's dressed like a Catholic priest. He has a, a chin strap beard. So I was trying to think who he looks most like. You, you can kind of imagine former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop or yep. somebody like uh, like like if you picture David Letterman without a mustache but with the chin strap beard. That's that's sort of close. Yeah, and I believe this is Foxworth playing this character as well, uh, just with a, a stick on, um, yeah, a, a yeah. beard without a mustache. A post-it note on his cheek that says beard. Yeah. So something happens through this ritual. The the man doing the the dance and the chanting priestess basically they cause something to pop on the priests. The the, the like guy dressed like the Catholic priest with the chin strap beard. Something pops in his neck and then blood sprays out of a hole in his neck. So it's like a cheaper version of scanners, except mm-hmm. it doesn't appear to kill him. He just sprays blood out of his neck. Right. But it was all a dream. And then our hero, a man we will learn his name to Jason, he snaps awake, gasping, clutching at his heart like, oh, like, a, like, he, like he was having a heart, heart attack. Uh, but he's wearing a vest and tie. He was sleeping in a vest and tie. I don't, that's yeah. just that much of a work beast is that yeah, he, right. you know, he's just working nonstop and then you, you don't go to bed. You just collapse and you wake up and you work some more. I guess so. He was on a couch, I think. And then the very next thing, we're in his doctor's office. And his doctor is uh, almost uh, has slightly kind of a Groucho Marx sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the doctor is telling him, he's like, look, Jason, you're a work beast. You, you got to ease up. You got to lighten the load. <laughs> this is clearly a problem they've talked about before. Jason just, it seems like he's working 24 hours a day. He never sleeps. He never relaxes. And so, and the, the work beastiness of his life is killing him. And so his doctor is like, you know, you got to take some time off. Uh, and meanwhile, Jason, what he wants is for his doctor to tell him what his dream means. But then he mm-hmm. explains that he can't remember what he dreamed and he never remembers his dreams. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and then the doctor offers to recommend a psychologist. I, I had to write this down. He says, you know, someone into dream analysis, Jungian stuff, a lot of good ones in Los Angeles. <laughs> but the doctor, anyway, he's like, no, look, work beast, you are too obsessed with hustling deals. You need to take a vacation. He actually gets out his prescription paper and he writes, mm-hmm. take a vacation on the paper. Right. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, uh, Jason goes down to the lobby. He gets off the elevator. He looks at a travel poster for Hawaii. It has an illustration of a mask. The illustration of the mask scares him. And then we immediately cut to work beast arriving at his hotel in Hawaii. Yeah. I mean, basically something other than work made him feel something. And he's like, oh, well, that's the sign. I need to go to Hawaii. Right. Uh, so I would say somehow a major premise of this film is Hawaii is scary, which doesn't really work. Yeah, yeah. It, it when we'll get in, we'll get into more of that. There, there's a lot to potentially discuss there, uh, and and I think ultimately there's there's some shallow exploration of some deeper topics in this mm-hmm. film. But uh, yeah, at any rate, he's he's drawn to Hawaii, and yet at the same time, he's a little afraid. But of course, we, we get to meet the fabulous resort where he is staying, which uh, his room is not right on the beach. It looks more like it's sort of on a golf course in a swamp. But a really nice swamp. Very, very yes. well manicured. Yes. Very well the fabulous manicured. Fabulous Cocoa Palms swamp. Resort. 
all the alligators have monocles. It would probably be interesting for for like big Elvis Presley or Hawaiian movie fans to watch this film and like and I wonder uh-huh. if they see the same place. It's like, oh yeah, that's where Elvis uh, his character got married in this film or whatnot. Right. Yeah, um, he sang a song with a ukulele here, and then uh, but that's where where uh, the house detective Rick is out for a jog. <laughs> Uh, so Jason, when he gets there, he meets a bunch of uh, uh, airline flight attendants who are staying at the resort, including one of them, the character Sherry, who we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. And they're sort of walking around commenting on the poor quality of men at the resort. Uh, the, they don't seem very interested in Work Beast. He's, they're like, what about him? And they're like, eh. And then they're like, but there is always Rick. And then you just smash cut to Rick, who's like in short shorts, running on the beach, showing <laughs> off his his finely tuned physique. And I guess we're supposed to take away from this that like that like Rick is hot stuff. Yeah. And uh, Rick, as we established earlier, is the house detective of the hotel. Yeah, which uh, again, when I, when when I watched this as well, I, I had no idea this was a thing. Uh, so yeah. just like the idea, like, you have a guy like full time, like on staff, perhaps lives in the hotel, mm-hmm. who just investigates crimes, like ongoing crimes in the hotel. But I enjoy being corrected in this way because it's one of those times where I was like, "What? This is so contrived. This lacks verisimilitude." And then I find out, "Oh no, that's actually a real thing." <laughs> I get, you know, and I was thinking too, like, okay, maybe this is only a thing in like big casino hotels where, uh-huh. you know, there's a lot, maybe a lot more going on. It's just a bigger infrastructure and you could, you could make a case for needing something like this. But I don't know. It sounds like back in the day, you know, just a, a reasonably sized, you know, I guess like a big city hotel, you know, the kind of mm-hmm. hotel uh, where detectives are going to be popping up and showing up. You might need somebody in house to deal with situations. And I think also sometimes it's, implied or, or or overtly stated too that you need somebody that is that's not the actual cops to get involved uh, particularly if it's an important uh, client of the hotel right well i think we're yeah maybe that's where some of the crookedness comes in because mm-hmm. it's like you don't want to necessarily have the law applied equally you want some kind of discretion that's really you know you're sort of like at the service of your your wealthy paying guests yeah but at any rate, Rick doesn't say. I mean, Rick just seems like this young guy. Like we're, and I think in real life, the house detective would be like a retired police officer or a retired right, detective, right. not this uh, this young hot guy running on the beach and doing two arm, uh, doing one arm uh, push ups. Right, not not a beach crime muscle boy. Yeah, uh, but so he's investigating beach crime because that's what he does. Apparently, there have been multiple break ins at the hotel. And uh, and so Sherlock Rick starts snooping around the hotel office looking for clues, and he finds something. I was trying to figure out what this was through the kind of large grain visuals of the version we saw. It looked kind of like a partially chewed up piece of carrot, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe that's just I don't know. Maybe maybe that's just my experiences with dogs coloring this. Uh, it looked like maybe it could be a cheese it. Yeah, it was something kind of large and orange. Yeah. And then meanwhile, we uh, we see what Jason's doing at the at the hotel here. He goes a lounging by the pool. He dozes off and starts having ominous dream visions. He dreams of a lady looming over him ominously. And, uh, you know, and, and I guess you wonder, it's like maybe he should have just gone to that Jungian analyst in, in Los Angeles. But uh, but then we cut back to Sherlock Rick. And he, uh, as I mentioned earlier, has a microscope in his lab. And he, he it's not a lab. It's just an office in the hotel, but with a microscope mm-hmm. when he's looking at slides. And he confers with his uh, cop friend. I think this is Vince. I'm not sure if I remember right. I didn't make a note of who it was. But he, he has a, a, a sort of cop buddy here. And uh, Rick concludes that we're dealing with a professional room thief. 
someone who is like a, a pro at working hotels and like making copies of keys to hotel rooms and then going in and stealing the, the things that belong to the guests. Oh, and this is where I think maybe this thing that we thought was the chewed up piece of carrot is like a piece of wax that would have been used in making copies of keys. Yeah, all right, that makes sense. And then ultimately it makes sense. Like if you if you have a big enough hotel with I guess high profile clientele, mm-hmm. it might make sense that you have a house detective to deal with this sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Uh, so later this night, we see Jason getting to know people who are vacationing there with him. Like he's hanging out with a couple people watching a musical performance. Uh, and Jason's talking about his investments. And he's like, well, I'm mostly into real estate. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, I thought you work beast, you cannot turn off your work beast, right? He's here on vacation. He's still just talking about investments. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, you know, he just got there. He's, it's going to take a little time to turn it off, I think. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in the background, we see another conversation where these guys are talking to a, a lady and they're like, we've got a prospectus you can look at. Time is money. And so it's just, I think th- maybe the movie, I couldn't tell if the movie knew it was trying to say something or not, but it seems like even on vacation, everyone's just trying to do business. Yeah, I think there's this, there is part part of the, the again the shallow alchemy of this film. I think is commentating in in part on like American war culture mm-hmm. and uh, and you know the degree to which it is uh, poisoning us or was poisoning us and it is still poisoning us. Well, yeah, to be I mean, if this was true at the time in the seventies, it definitely seems true today that you know for a lot of people, their work sort of is their life. Well, yeah, and you see that in like the term workaholic, right? Uh, yeah. we, we were talking about this a little off uh, off mic before we recorded here. Like, which is a better term, work beast or workaholic? Because workaholic, it, it if you if you just actually look at the word, it it implies, you know, it, it expressly states that like this is something that is harmful to you have uh, an you illness. Know, yeah, yeah, I have an illness. This is something. This is not good. I shouldn't be bragging about being or you know pat myself on the back for being a workaholic. Um, whereas work beast does sound more fun in some respects, but also does sound monstrous as well. Something that just takes over your body, like lycanthropy and you, you know, you have to go out and and slaughter the farmer's uh, sheep herd or whatever. Uh, but uh, I I think I ultimately like work beast best. I think people mm-hmm. should start using it in their job interviews. Yeah. And, and, you know, don't be afraid to tell your boss, look, if uh, if you can't handle me at my work worst, you don't deserve me at my work beast. <laughs> okay, I apologize. Let's keep moving. No, 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 no. That's fabulous. Uh, but anyway, so the the lady who's uh, got a prospectus on her way. This is Diane. This is uh, uh, who uh, who of course Jason is going to fall in love with. We can already tell just immediately when mm-hmm. they meet. Uh, they made eyes at the pool earlier. And they start chatting, and she's like, well, uh, I can tell you're on vacation instead of business, even though he's usually on business. And uh, and so they watch a musical number where the band plays a song. And this is one of those things, and it, it's very common. I'm, I don't know if this matches your experience. I think it's very common in made-for-TV movies of the late 70s to slightly pad out their runtime with musical numbers. So, like, what yeah. if we had characters go to a bar where a band was playing, and then we just watched part of a song? Yeah, I mean, it is a good way to to, to lengthen the film. I mean, uh, Zat is pretty long because it contains two songs in its in their entirety. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin, little on the short side, could have used some full musical numbers. I would I would definitely take some Metal Storm songs, uh, but this is one where the lyrics of the song also describe the plot of the movie so far. 
So I wrote them down. The lyrics go, I was just minding my own business, the way I always do, nose to the grindstone, heart to the floor, when you smiled at me, a smile that opened the door. Oh, yeah. Like, lyrically, it could be a Jackson Brown song, though, when you, it's not uh, a Jackson Brown yeah. song. <laughs> I, I was trying to, to think of a, to sing like Doctor My Eyes, but it's about seeing these ominous visions. Um, yeah. No, it doesn't quite work. Okay. Uh, especially he couldn't remember the vision. So th this is the thing that's not really making sense to me. He's being troubled by these dreams that he's having of this ancient – of this ritual. Uh, but he says that he can't remember his dream. So how does he know that's what's troubling him? Or how, how does he – like he, it's implied that he doesn't remember what the dreams are when he wakes up. And that sounds like a very sort of question that would be posed in the lyrics of a Jackson Brown song, oh, okay, uh, I yeah. have to say. Um, but, but yeah, he, we have privileged information as the viewer. We see clips of his dream, and, but he clearly doesn't retain all of this, except for some sort of uh, vague feeling that um, uh -huh. you know, Hawaii is uh, attractive yet scary. I don't know. R right, right. So Jason and Diane, they, they get to know each other talking about business. They talk about achievement. You know, they're, they're, like, they're like the big Lebowski. They're, they're, we are people who are able to achieve. And they talk <laughs> about what schools they got into and becoming the executive vice president at work. Uh, all while the camera keeps cutting to the moon. And every time it cuts to the moon, it plays this, this little uh, synthesizer sting. It's like the finger of the moon coming down to touch you with a little tingle and uh and every time it sends jason a little tingle it makes it harder for him to pay attention to his conversation and diane starts sounding like she's speaking from the bottom of a well and mm -hmm. suddenly jason just gets up and runs away clutching his chest and then he turns into a werewolf in the bushes apparently so happened. yeah uh, which is great because there's a couple who like hears it. They like walk by this rat, you know, this shaking bush, and they hear this snarling, and they go immediately report it to Rick. And Rick investigates, and he finds wolf slashes in the palm tree trunk. So the next morning, uh, Jason, of course, does not remember what happened last night. I guess this goes along with him never remembering his dreams. But Rick is on the case. He's investigating. And uh, and we do then get some insight into what's going on with the room thief. I wondered if this would connect to the werewolf thing, but it doesn't at all. There's just a creep who's just stealing from the rooms. He's got a key cutter and he's making copies of keys. And at first, it looks like maybe he's also making a silver bullet. Like he's got a little casting thing and he pours some metal into it but i think maybe he's just making keys yeah yeah i don't think there's any silver going on here Bummer. Uh, which ultimately yeah is, is we'll discuss it's kind of a missed opportunity there's not there's nothing really in the film about there's nothing special about the slaying of a werewolf or the detecting of a werewolf there's nothing like that be it silver bullets or some sort of um uh, uh you know um like hawaiian tradition nothing Right. So Jason goes to see a doctor. He's already been to a doctor once in the movie. He goes again, and the doc just thinks it's an anxiety attack. That's the product of overworking, sun exposure, and alcohol. And he's like, just, mm -hmm. you know, you need to chill out. You need to go on vacation. Yeah. He's like, I, I used to be a big city doctor, and then I came out here, and I just uh, I took it down a notch. You need to do the same. He says, I finally learned how to relax. <laughs> but surely people can be stressed out in Hawaii, too, right? Well, you know, I wondered if if that was part of like the the genesis for this story is like mm -hmm. somebody who who was experiencing vacation anxiety and 
and decided to explore it fictionally because you know obviously that that is a thing like people who you know it's just because you 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 know you're fortunate enough to get to go on vacation doesn't mean you you don't bring your your you know existing anxieties with you so mm-hmm. I, I wonder if that was a case where like one of the screenwriters had an experience like this and and did some uh, you know fictionalizing and and some some dream weaving around it at least in the modern era, I find a very important way to avoid that is cutting off internet access. That is like yeah. the key. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, it's it's always lingering. Yeah, yeah. You can always get a, a, a dose of of anxiety as long as you have uh, the password for the rooms uh, wireless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can feel bad no matter where you are. <laughs> But so also on this outing, Jason and Diane end up going to an old church, and we finally get a little bit of backstory. They go into this church, and they look at a picture of the guy we saw in the vision earlier, the guy with the chin-strap beard, the priest. Mm -hmm. And we find out that that was, in fact, Jason's ancestor, who was a missionary in Hawaii in the 1870s, which is a little – I'm wondering if he's supposed to be a Catholic missionary. He's supposed to be a Catholic priest who is Jason's ancestor. Yeah, I don't know. They gave him kind of an Amish beard, though, like yeah. like as if he's an Amish missionary. Uh, but uh, I, I think maybe they went with that weird beard just so you could recognize his face to some extent. Yeah. So you could see the resemblance between him and his ancestor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, back at the hotel, uh, we see a couple, not Jason and Diane, and the other couple, I think the people who they were talking to about uh, I don't know, real estate investments earlier. Uh, they're watching a performance of what we are told is an ancient Polynesian ritual dance that was, quote, performed in secret until the altar was destroyed by missionaries in 1878. A curse, it is said and believed, haunts the descendants of the defilers. And she's like reading this from a pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I should point out here that you know this is obvious weird fictioning of hawaiian yeah. culture the, though at the same time the the movie story is at least very shallowly acknowledging the destructive force of colonialism on hawaiian culture um and i should also note that this dance sequence that we we see here and i think we see it again there's this bit with the spinning dance with the mask on the back of the head that creates a transformation effect uh it, it's actually pretty impressive but I was wondering, like, where does this come from? I I feel like I've seen this sort of dance before, but I I don't think I've seen it associated with um with with Hawaiian dance. Maybe it's I don't know if it's associated with any Polynesian culture, or maybe it is. I don't know. I couldn't find anything about it. But it's impressive. This is one of the more uh, impressive sequences in the film, where there's this dance and there's this this kind of bestial mask on the back of the head, and it creates this transformation effect. And then, of course, we keep cutting to him freaking out over it, and, and that helps as well. Right, yeah. So Jason, one, he, he's trying to say his good nights um, to to Diane, but he, he immediately starts wolfing out again. We see the mm-hmm. moon, and and the, the synthesizer stings come in. And, uh, and, of course, it is the prelude to wolfing out. He stares directly into the camera, and he jiggles his body. And then there's a wolf attack. So uh, Rick, the ho- house detective, and Sherry, the flight attendant, they're hanging out, and then Rick has to go do some kind of security business, and then immediately Workwolf busts in Maul's Sherry. But it's one of those attacks where it's only an extreme close-up of a wolf eye and a claw, yeah. and you really don't see anything that happens. And then the next morning, there's been a murder, and Rick is investigating, 
And first of all, Rick does not seem all that upset. He just seems kind of confused. And he says, uh, he says to the other person he's investigating with, she wasn't into drugs or anything wrong. So this doesn't make sense. And I was <laughs> like, what do people, do people normally get mauled by wolves as a result of being into drugs? I mean, I guess it's, it's, this is like a, um, you know, psychedelic dark ages thing. You know, this yeah. is the idea of the kids. They'll, they'll take the LSD, they'll take the mushrooms and then they'll maul themselves to death. Yeah, I think this is just world fallacy, right? Like you, you mm-hmm. only get torn to pieces by a wolf if you're a bad person. Yeah, you must have done something. Clearly, that is not true. Uh, Sherry, Sherry, the flight attendant, did nothing to deserve getting work wolfed. Um, and the housekeeping worker, by the way, who says she discovered her, there's a scene where she's talking about it. She makes it clear that she was literally torn into pieces. She said that half mm. of her was on the bed, half on the floor, and we don't see a drop of blood. I guess this is because it's made for TV. But it made me think about how it's interesting what is acceptable on TV that you can – fully evoke the fact of a gruesome, gory, dismemberment death if you describe it in words, you but you can't show any of it on the screen. Uh, which I don't know. I, I suddenly had that moment of like, why is it like that? Like, why, why would TV standards prevent you from showing the fake blood but not prevent you from verbally describing a dismemberment? Yeah, because ultimately like, the irony with a film like this is that the description and then remembering what she looks like and remembering like the, the very, you know, bubbly lifelike qualities of the, of the actress, like that's worse than anything they could have conceivably pulled off in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, any kind of uh, effect they might've used with splattered fake blood or, or, you know, half torso effects, anything like that. Like instead the, the version that we have in our mind is actually pretty gruesome. Of course, as the viewer, we know that it was Jason in beast uh, in beast form. But obviously, once again, he doesn't remember anything. And uh, so the the police arrive to investigate. They're sort of I think they're sort of competing now with with Rick versus this police detective uh, who's sort of got a George C. Scott vibe. And they're they're having a somewhat territorial dispute over who does this investigation. Well, um, I like how they're they're quick to remind Rick. Uh, hey, Rick, you know, you're not a real cop, right? Like yes. I'm the I'm the actual uh-huh police here uh you are not so please you know don't overstep yourself and this was the point i was thinking about this when i was taking a shower earlier today i was like oh my goodness what if all this werewolf stuff this is the the this is the fiction in reality um rick is the serial killer um because you know you think about uh, i can't remember to what extent this is a a thing in in the actual world but i know that in various serial murderer fiction they often point that oh well you know a lot of times the the murderer is drawn to the world of uh of law enforcement and sometimes they'll take on a role that is uh you know like a security personnel or something like they want to be a police officer they want proximity uh to the world of of crime and murder but they you know but they, they don't have it together enough to do that uh so they end up you know, being something like maybe a house detective, hmm. um, and um, oh, and then there's some other I like stuff this later on. Version, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the, there'll yeah. be some more evidence for this hypothesis later. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, also we get Jason and Diane frolicking around. You know, they're just running around on a beach, having a great time together. They're clearly falling in love. Uh, and I will say, it's not the most convincing love story ever, but it's probably better at establishing it than Metal Storm, which once again I was just thinking about earlier today, and was I was laughing at the, with uh, with Dojin and Kelly Preston in that movie, like absolutely nothing. They're just like, well, we're in love for some reason. Now we are the we bind each other together. We have known each other for five minutes of screen time. Uh-huh. 
whereas, yeah, in this, I, I think one of the reasons that this film ultimately, you know, works as well as it does for me is that I do <laughs> kind of buy into their, their TV love, you know? It's, okay. It's, it's, it's made for TV love, but, you know, it'll work. You know, if you're coasting after the Hulk, it's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but anyway, the, the, so there's a part that, again, I think informs the, the backstory. Diane finds a birthmark behind Jason's ear, and Jason says, oh, something my grandmother told me about my great-grandfather. She told me that he had a scar on his neck, just like my birthmark. Uh, oh. So we think back to in the opening vision that he doesn't remember about where the, the chin-strap beard guy was spraying blood out of his neck. Ah, this is the mark. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, nighttime again, another full moon. Like in many werewolf movies, this movie seems to think that you just get like a week straight of full moons all in a row. <laughs> well, I guess there's, there keeps being enough of a full moon. You, you don't uh, have to have like a full full moon, right? It's just, you just have to be close enough and it's going to trigger the change. Gibbous will do it. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and oh, and then also, uh, this is the first time in the movie where we really get anything like a, a full peak at, at Work Beast in wolf form. It's not great. I got to say, it's not great. Uh, he's just very, very hairy all over and has some fangs. And yeah. Well, I, I think we, we do have to, to be fair. Uh, first of all, there's the whole TV movie thing. Right. But then also, I think the, the werewolf transformation and effects in this film are ultimately, you know, they're very old school. They're more in the vein of Lon Chaney Jr. Right. Uh, as opposed to the, the revolution in cinematic werewolf depictions that would come in the early 80s with films like An American Werewolf in London, The Howling, uh, the Thriller music video, and so forth. If you think mm-hmm. of 1970s werewolf films like stuff uh, like, stuff like uh, Werewolves on Wheels, mm-hmm. you know, they all tend Beast to be must this, die. The Beast Must Die. I actually can't remember what the the wolf was like in The Beast Must Die, but... It may have been more of like a straight up wolf that they shot, uh, but but for the most part, a lot of the werewolves of this era were still based on that old school idea of Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, in a fur costume. You know, like that was your idea of what a werewolf was, and it was only in the eighties that we really moved further into this idea of a more lupine hybrid beast. That's right. Yeah, I was thinking about the same thing. You've got a couple of competing strains of werewolf morphology in the movie canon, and one is the one you're talking about, the Lon Chaney Jr. style, which is typically full humanoid body, fully bipedal, but covered with hair with claws and fangs. And often the hair on the head in this style forms a sort of rectangular shape, but it's basically a flat humanoid face. And then I would say the major differences with the the more updated werewolf morphology that I think are really – I don't think this was the first movie to do it this way, but it was really influential was, like you say, American Werewolf in London, which came out in 81. And there, the big difference, I think, is that the werewolf has a long snout and a more dog-like skull. That's mm-hmm. that's the big difference. Yeah, and ultimately also a, a more ambitious bit of uh, special effects uh creation here i mean going beyond special effects makeup uh so ultimately if you had to create one uh go and you don't have much to work with the lon cheney jr direction is the is the way to go yeah exactly i mean even most werewolf movies in the years since don't look as good as american werewolf in london so yeah that that was a special a very special unique achievement but I will say this, they don't show much of, of the werewolf in Death Moon, especially at this point in the film. It's kind of a flash. It's kind of uh, then close up on eyes, maybe teeth. And, uh, and that helps it remain effective. Mm-hmm. 
Now this is mid movie, some so they they spend some time sort of waiting around in in some B plots. Uh, Rick mm-hmm. ends up running around after the room thief. Like there's a, a chase scene that's almost Benny Hill like. Yeah. Uh, doesn't quite have yakety sacks, but it does have trombones. Yeah, and it's hard to be too invested in the the room thief uh, scenario. Although I, I mean, I was staying in. Um, essentially a, like a hotel room in Hawaii at the time. Uh-huh. So I, I kind of thought about this a little bit. I was like, what if there's a room thief now? You know, yeah. what if they're running around out there and there's a, 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 a house detective chasing them? But really, it's hard to get invested in this plot. What if there was simultaneously a room thief and a work beast? What would you be more concerned about? Mm, I mean, I guess ultimately the work beast, because the work beast will just straight up tear you in half. Right. Yeah, that's my point. So I think the the room thief subplot doesn't doesn't work super well. But uh, but anyway, so we're, we're back with uh, Jason and, and he goes back to the doctor again. So third time in the movie, he goes to the doctor. <laughs> He's just like, I don't know, doc, I feel bad. And the doctor <laughs> at this point, I think the doctor should just be like in uh, want to reference the Simpsons again. Sir, you need a quack, you know. <laughs> uh, but meanwhile, Rick is being assisted now by his criminology colleague, Julie. And together they're looking for clues. And in fact, Julie finds a clue. She discovers traces of canine hair i think it is at the crime scenes and rick's like but but we don't allow dogs in the hotel (laughs) and uh another thing that was funny is it's hard to hear the dialogue in the scene it's like poor audio mixing where the phones ringing in the background are louder than rick's lines Mm. Uh, but anyway so we you know jack and diane their romance is still developing they're hitting it off and uh, Diane is at her work conference. She's trying to close the big deal. But Jason reveals that he has made reservations for them at something called the Paradise Retreat, which, from what I can tell, is like a second-order vacation. It's like your vacation is not vacation-y enough, so you take a vacation from your vacation. Well, that that sounds like a, a total work beast move. Like, okay, the vacation's not working. We need to take this to the next level. Yes, yeah, so they're going to leave the resort hotel and go to Paradise Retreat, which – uh, to be fair, I think he did explain that the major difference is it's like they don't have uh, TV and phones and stuff. So I don't know. Right. Maybe that's kind of like disconnecting the Internet like I was talking about earlier. Yeah, it's 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 even more uh, uh, it's like on the other side of the island or something. Right. But before they go to that, uh, there's one more night at the resort hotel. They're going to leave for that the next day. Uh, so, of course, we're going to get yet another wolf out evening. So it, we at this point, the movie, I will say, is somewhat repetitive because it's just another night, another full moon uh, due to tax again. But this time we get Work Beast versus Room Thief. They, they, the streams <laughs> cross and it yeah. is not a close call. No, I mean, they should have made the Room Thief be, be a vampire, right? Oh, uh, that would have been really good. That would have, or, or maybe even another werewolf. Uh, but it's just a guy who steals keys and makes copies of keys and then sneaks into rooms and steals stuff. So, of course, he just gets torn to pieces by our, our wolf. Right. And so people find him floating in the water the next morning face down. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the room thief problem, that is solved. Uh, but a, a thing that's funny is every morning we see Jason in a kind of daze after, you know, he's like, what happened last night? I don't know. Usually he's in his bed. But in, in this case, we see him wandering in a daze in filthy clothes while, while like moody wolf remorse music plays in the background. And he just stumbles past Rick early in the morning doing one-handed push-ups and getting pumped up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and even though his clothing is grubby, it doesn't look nearly as grubby as it should have been if he had torn a man to pieces uh, just a few hours prior. Yeah, agreed. Where's the blood? I guess yep. they couldn't show that on TV. 
Right. Anyway, Diane and Jason, they go off to their, uh, to their paradise retreat. And so they're, they're like on the road heading off to that place. But, uh, but, uh, but Rick is still on the case back at the, the hotel and he's hanging out in the lobby when the doctor who uh, Jason kept going to arrives at the hotel inquiring for, for work beast at the front desk. Uh, and I'm like, why didn't he just call on the phone? I'm not sure. But Rick overhears him and he wants to pick his brain. Absolutely no respect for medical privacy here. The doctor <laughs> just explains to Rick that he's like, well, I've got his lab tests or, or I, I can't believe them. <laughs> uh, and so he explains that Jason's lab results came back and he needs to consult with a specialist on the mainland. And Rick says, what's wrong with him, Doc? And I thought the doctor was going to be like, it's the strangest thing. His blood was not human. It was work beast blood. But he doesn't <laughs> say that. He just says, like, I don't know. I just don't know. Mm. So that scene kind of fizzles out when it could have gone somewhere. Yeah. But it's implied, like, the, the, wolf, the, the blood is wolf blood. There's something right. wolfy about this blood. Right, exactly. Uh, but then Rick makes a very smart move. He's like, okay, I've just been looking for clues. What I really need to do is go consult a wise sorcerer. Mm. Um, so instead, he goes to to visit this wise and powerful witch named Tapalua, who is, uh, again, the, the character played by Franz Nuyan. Mm -hmm. And she, uh, of course, because, of course, speaks about herself in the third person. So she's like, Tapalua knows everything and everyone on this island. And Rick thinks that she can tell him something about what's going on. And, uh, and she, she tells him, first of all, this is a direct quote. She says, my powers are more powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, she says, they're, they're rooted deeper. They're as old as the islands. Uh, but Tapulua ends up being cool with Rick because she says she's watched him and she knows that he has great love for the island. That's a <laughs> quote again. Have we seen any evidence of this? Absolutely none. The, you know, <laughs> the, 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 all, we, all we really know about Rick is that he takes his position as a house detective a little too seriously and keeps in shape. Uh -huh. But yeah, we don't see him, uh, you know, engaging in local politics or standing up for uh, the native uh, population. We don't see him doing, being protective of the environment or any Nothing. other kind of spin you might take on it, uh, you, know, in, in, you know, even in just a, a film like this. Uh, it ends up having this kind of almost dark place with Garth Marenghi vibe yes, to it, where yes. she's like, "Oh no, you were you were the uh, you know you are a good Hawaiian citizen uh, uh -huh. just because I, I say so." Of course, you are. You're the hero of the film. Uh, but yeah, nothing is presented to back this up, and it's I, it's very. I just graduated Harvard College Yale, where I got an A. Yeah, so. <laughs> So yeah, I think there's ultimately a lot you could unravel there about the the positioning of this of a character like this in a film like this, a film that again, at least very shallowly is contemplating uh like the impact of colonialism on Hawaiian culture and uh and and the on the Hawaiian islands. Um but without really doing anything with it, like barely getting its toes wet. And yeah. then, but then they prop up this character as, uh, as, as just a totally okay. Like nothing, nothing problematic about Rick. I mean, she'll vouch for him. So I guess we just got to take her word for it. Yeah. She, she obviously saw something that we didn't see. Right. She was, she got to see the scenes that were cut. But this also, this supports my um, serial killer hypothesis because Rick oh. has, it seems like Rick has delusions, perhaps, not, not only a strong interest in the supernatural as well as law enforcement, but also has clear delusions about being like this, this kind of hero of the right. islands without yeah. any evidence to support it. 
Oh, yeah, clearly, because when she's like, I know you're good because you have great love for this island, Rick, I think he says, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And she explains to him about the werewolf curse. Um, Not that there's much left to figure out for the audience, right? Like, the audience is is up to speed, but Rick is not. Yeah. So she explains that Workbeast had an ancestor who was a brutal missionary who destroyed the altar of the people who lived there. And they put a curse on him and his descendants so that if they came back to the island, they would turn into a werewolf. And that's what's happening. A weirdly localized curse, ultimately. But yes, so it goes. Well, is part of the curse also that he would be like psychically lured back there? Like it's not really ever explained that there's any good reason why he came, except that he knew he had an ancestor who was a brutal missionary here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah, it's not not very well supported. I guess he's kind of drawn back by that poster, but who knows? Well, anyway, Rick tries to go to the police detective, the George C. Scott type guy, and explain everything to him. And he brings a book called The Legend and History of Lycanthropes. <laughs> and the detective is not buying it. And again, I liked how much crap the, the actual police detective gives him over this. It's like, come yeah. on. Uh, you, you were ridiculous. You're not a real police officer. And you just brought me a book about werewolves. Again, I think a pro- this, this is a warning sign right here. Uh, and this would, this would later on, you would see an interview with this uh, detective saying, yeah, we should have seen it coming because he was, right. he was raving about werewolves. Um, <laughs> yes. And it, it turns out he killed all these people in this hotel and was blaming it on some sort of mythological beast. What's the name of the true crime podcast about Rick, the, uh, the room thief serial killer? <laughs> Maybe it's called Paradise Retreat. Anyway, there at at the Paradise Retreat, Jason and Diane are like, wow, it's so much. It's so nice to get away from vacation. And they're giving each other back rubs and talking about what they're going to do once the trip is over. I think, you know, they're like, well, we're in love now. We've got to find a way to see each other. But then, uh-oh, the moon. And mm-hmm. Jason starts yet again his pro forma wolf out. He starts jiggling in the moonlight and he dashes away. And Diane is like, Jason, what's happening? You know, are you undergoing some kind of hideous transformation? And she she chases him and he starts snarling. And I think at one point while he's snarling and she's gasping, he actually says, I am a wolf now. <laughs> uh, because I, definitely the subtitles in Dutch say, ik ben wolf. <laughs> I'm, I am a wolf. Okay. I, I mean, wor- it's- uh, ik ben workbeast, ik ben wolf. I mean, it's hard on vacation when you, you know, you're having to share a bathroom and occasionally you turn into a werewolf. It's, you know, everybody knows what that's like. It's really bad sharing a bathroom with a werewolf because the drain, the drains, I mean, the drains are just, just totally clogged. Yeah. Oh, and then finally we get to see a full transformation scene. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what you call this technique. It's the kind that has match cuts where you're progressively more wolfy in each shot. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. And as he becomes a werewolf, one thing, I, I don't know if you noticed the same thing. So his face, of course, becomes more hirsute, but it also becomes more wrinkled. And I was mm. wondering why. Why is he more wrinkly as a wolf? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. He ends up, he does end up looking older. Uh, I don't know if, if that was just part of the, just part of the design or, they, you know, the, if they put a lot of thought into that. But yeah, he, he does look a bit, a bit more aged as a wolf. Uh, but then, of course, we're into the end game here. So he turns into a wolf. He's got underbite fangs. He's he's hairy now. And he morphs. And the question is, is he going to kill his, his beloved Diane? And he, he's not really himself anymore. He doesn't seem to recognize her. So he just runs around. And then uh, you think he's going to kill Diane. But then Rick arrives to save the day, of course. 
Uh, so there's a chase scene involving the three characters that is extremely dimly lit. Uh, and in the end, Rick has to shoot the work beast to save Diane. Uh, and, uh, and he's not immediately dead. He gets shot and then he starts wandering into a cave, having vision visions of the ritual again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they kind of play it for pity. It's kind of sad, like, Oh, you know, poor, poor beast. Um, and then, uh, he gets shot one last time and he turns back into Jason form and dies. And Diane just seems kind of confused. Now they do have a nice little bit at the end that actually got me because he, he, he guns down the werewolf. Uh, Rick does. He runs over and he's like, check, doing that thing, which you always do, you know, check and see right. if the monster is dead. Right. And then Wolf Claw comes, uh, comes up from the ground and grabs him by the neck. Choke and then scare. We, and we get that synth music again. And I was like, oh my goodness, they're going to do it. They're going to have him c- kill Rick. And we're going to have this dark ending on a mm-hmm. Wednesday night on CBS in 1978. But no, then he dies. Then the, the hand falls dead and becomes a human arm. So that that would have been a good reveal. So he he reaches up, he he strangles Rick, and then he reveals that actually Rick was the killer the whole time. Yeah, like I mean, explain, I, I, yeah. I still kind of think it's the case that Rick's the real killer. Uh, but like I said, Diane does not. She doesn't seem all that sad. She just seems like what? Like she's very confused. And then uh, Diane and Rick walk away together and they stare at the moon, looking at the moon like, I know it was you. <laughs> and then we see the dead Jason and his his eyeballs turn yellow for some reason. Mm. Do, do you understand what that, may, what maybe that means? Maybe it implies that he's not dead or the curse is not over or maybe it's trying to be clever and saying like the curse is not just about Rick. It's about like a lot, like it's about our, our culture as a whole. It's about our, our, the way we handle work in America. I don't know. Uh, No time to hash it out. Roll credits. Yep. Yep. And then we got to, we got to cut to the local news. Oh man. And that's, this this is, this is so, so made for TV. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, um, it, 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 clearly they they had to they had to land this one uh in a certain amount of time uh but i feel like they told a they, they told a fun story for the most part you know it's very much a werewolf story by the books there's not nothing really in this film that's surprising uh death moon as we encounter it from 1978 I, uh, again it's ultimately just a, a tv monster movie uh but it is kind of interesting that it does seem to get into some very shallow treatment of um of of some some topics such as uh, American work culture, stereotypical Hawaiian vacations, uh, the legacy of colonialism and and cultural and inherited guilt. Like there seem to be some of these ideas floating around in the script and in the final uh, product that we have with Death Moon. They're just uh, again very shallow, not not really explored. But the particles are there. You know what I'm saying? You can almost see them on the horizon, and you wonder if they're a mirage or not. Yeah, it's one of these moments where it's like, uh, students, what is this movie almost but not quite saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or what is this movie, students, what is this movie um, almost but not saying uh, about any of these topics? What is it almost confronting but then shying away from completely? Oh, I mean, that's actually one of my favorite things about sort of lower brow movies, B movies made for TV junk and all that is that sometimes they expose interesting kind of vague anxieties and awarenesses that aren't even really fully recognized by the creators. Yeah. And and, and in other cases, too, it's the kind of thing where you could make an argument that, say, a great artist could seriously contemplate these ideas in a film. But 
but maybe not, maybe not well, or, 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 you know, the bar would be so much higher to pull it off at like a, at a, like a, a, a you know, a high level. Uh, but at the low level of the B of B cinema, yeah, almost anything is fair game. I got an alternate title. Work beast goes West. Oh, no, not very good, huh? <laughs> you mean like Work Beast goes west to the Hawaiian Islands, or yeah, are you yeah. proposing a sequel where Work Beast comes back and goes uh, on an even further vacation? west? Oh, I don't know. It goes to Japan or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Work Beast goes east and goes. Uh, I mean, Work Beast takes Manhattan. There's so many directions you could go in. <laughs> uh, Work Beast is a great title. I, I want to see someone take it and run with it. Um, so, uh, yeah, if, if you're out there listening, uh, go for it. Uh, and certainly I would love to hear from any listeners who, uh, you know, with, with, with Dutch backgrounds, uh, uh-huh. you know, who can, who can tell, really fill us in about the work beast thing. Yeah. But also if you know about any notable Hawaiian or Polynesian horror movies or, uh, or other like B sci-fi movies, anything like that, that, that we didn't come across. Yes. Uh, write us. So this is the point in the episode where we were going to have a section discussing the mere notion of werewolves in Hawaii, uh, the Hawaiian islands where there have never been wolves, uh, and get into a little related Polynesian mythology, um, because there doesn't seem to be anything quite like a Western werewolf in Hawaiian folklore and mythology uh, for a variety of reasons. However, there are human-animal hybrids, there are animal transformations, there are heroes and gods that have hybrid qualities, there's uh, there's a hog child, there are even the dog men, and even at least one quote-unquote cannibalistic dog man. Uh, that is from the, the work of uh, early American folklorist Martha Warren Beckwith. So these are not Western werewolves, and to be clear, what we see in Death Moon is very much a classic horror movie wolfman, you know, a wolfman born out of Western um, werewolf uh, beliefs and ideas. Uh, so anyway, th- there's a lot to break down here, and I kept adding information to the notes on related Hawaiian mythology, and Joe was digging up some stuff as well. And then we just realized it was getting a bit long, and this might be, might be more appropriate for a future episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind itself, either focusing on Hawaiian mythology in a broader sense or doing a kind of survey of Beastman myths in various cultures. So if that's the sort of thing you're interested in, let us know. Now, for the rest of you, if you're wondering, well, where can I see Death Moon? There, uh, there, there are three ways to go about it. Uh, one is find yourself probably a European VHS release of this. Uh, you're not going to find it on DVD or Blu-ray. And then have a VHS player so you can watch it. I think, uh, uh, as far as I can tell, yeah, that's the only way it was ever released to, uh, to, to, to home audiences. Another way you can see this movie is by traveling back in time to 1978 <laughs> and catching it uh, on the, the Wednesday night lineup on CBS. Uh, or you can simply go to YouTube, where, again, there's been uh, a rip of it with, with Dutch subtitles uh, on YouTube since 2017. So I imagine it's still around. Um, nobody seems to care. That's that's where you can watch it. Uh, and it's it's not a bad rip. It's not perfect. Ultimately, I'd, I think I'd love to see this film pop up on Blu-ray. Um, <laughs> I'd love to see what, I mean, if, if restored footage is even possible, I, w- I would like to see it. I, I think it's ultimately kind of a, a fun film uh, that could do with a little more exposure. So Shout Factory, if you're listening, uh, get on it. Give me that, uh, give me that, uh, that Death Moon Blu-ray. 
the VHS cover for uh, whatever release this was, I guess this this may have been uh, well, Dutch or German or something that says Wolfsmond. This really gives the wrong idea about the movie. Yeah, it looks uh, yeah very exploitive uh, based on this VHS box art. I can imagine the disappointment of uh, of people who picked it up. All right. If you want to listen to more Weird House Cinema, you can find it uh, in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, wherever you get your podcast. Weird House Cinema comes out on Fridays. That's uh, that's our time to to put the science aside and just focus on a on a weird movie. The rest of the time, we are a science podcast. Tuesdays and Thursdays, those are our core episodes in which we take on scientific, cultural, sometimes philosophic topics. And then, yeah, on Friday, we put we throw all that out the window and we just talk about bad weird films and the like huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 